Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world. This is Judge Jim Gray on the Voice America Variety Channel, and I'm just always excited to be with you for another edition of All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. As you'll discover by spending an hour with us each Friday morning at 10 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Pacific, or subsequently on demand, we'll take some of the issues that many of us are just not being discussed by our so-called leaders, but speak about he's not a so-called leader. Our guest today is a really wonderful social public servant for many, many years, Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez, who's a friend of mine. Uh, he goes back, a, we go back a long way, but he was raised, as I understand it, in a small town in Texas by a son of some migrant workers and is really, literally an American success story. He is living and has lived the American dream. Ended up going to Watsonville, California, which is a farm community, and then migrated to my county, Orange County in California. Uh, his father, as I understand it, uh, went into the furniture manufacturing business and ended up being a pastor. I'm going to ask Ambassador Vasquez uh, how that happened, but I'm sure that his father is a true hero to him, as is his mother. Graduated from Orange High School, then went to Santa Ana College, University of Redlands. And then I believe the next step was to become a police officer. He will, I'm sure, agree that it is the obligation of prosecutors and police officers to do the right thing for the right reason every time. They speak for us, and, and it's critically important. He was so well-versed and so well-appreciated, became the appointments chair for Governor Duke Majan here in California, and then was elected to the Board of Supervisors until something like 1994. Uh, then he became the director, and this is close to my heart because I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Costa Rica, became the director of the Peace Corps uh, from 2002 until 2006, uh, appointed by President George W. Bush, and then, and we're going to have a lot of difficulty feeling too sorry for him, uh, Gaddy Vasquez became the eighth United States representative to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization, and he was stationed in uh, in Rome, Italy for uh, several years. So as I was joking with him a little bit earlier, I'm having a great deal of difficulty feeling sorry for you, Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez, but thank you for your service. You recently spoke to us at the World Affairs Council here in Orange County, and uh, just welcome to All Rise, Ambassador Vasquez. It's nice to have you with us. Well, thank you, Judge Gray. It's uh, it's great to be with you. And as you had mentioned, we've been friends for a, a very long time. And uh, you have, uh, in some ways, uh, uh, been along uh, the path in my journey as I have had the opportunity to also uh, watch your uh, your growth through our judicial system and your representation on some very important issues. So I'm just delighted to be able to join you today because uh, I know that you are someone who uh, enjoys the opportunity to engage on the issues and topics of our time. So it's a pleasure. 
we should be able in our in our country, Gaddy, to discuss anything, anything at all. We shouldn't be yelling at each other or calling each other names. Uh, we're so polarized today, and and it's just a, a tragedy that we have inflicted upon ourselves. Uh, I think in many ways it was caused by uh, cable TV stations that I originally thought that my goodness, we're going to have hundreds of cable TV networks out there. We're going to be exposed to all kinds of different viewpoints. This is going to be wonderful, and it turned out to be the absolute reverse, that people will, in one TV station, find out what your issues are, how, what your beliefs are, and will just cater, putting blinders on you, just cater to you, and so you're the good guys, and everybody else is evil. Have you seen that in our society? And, and uh, of course, gerrymandering as well, carving out different voting districts so that I can have a safe seat. I don't care if you have one as long as I have one. And so I can take more radical positions. Have, have you seen this? And, and how are we going to get away from that sort of polarization, Ambassador Vasquez, that we find ourselves in now? Well, I find myself uh, really checking myself on a regular basis because, as you pointed out, there is such a, 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 a polarization uh, of American society today with regard to uh, almost a, you're either for us or you're against us kind of a thing. And, and a nation like ours was, was based and built and predicated on uh, the ability to have the kind of civil discourse and discussion in the public square that is so important. And I think each of us needs to check ourselves from time to time. I know I do. And, and a apply a filter that that allows me to step back a little bit and reserve my perspective, my opinion, to hear the voice and the opinions and perspective of, of others, and, and then, then begin to correlate my thinking with the thinking that other folks have in order to try to get to a place where we are creating a, an, an atmosphere, uh, a society where we can have the kind of conversations, the kind of dialogue uh, that our nation was built upon. I think we need to, to take it back, and I know to some folks it may sound uh, too uh, uh, too optimistic, too hopeful to be able to get back to that. And I'm not talking about returning to the days of old, but to using the tools that are available to us, uh, both whether it's uh, technology tools, communication tools, platforms, and so on and so forth, to be able to have these kinds of discussions, but always predicating every conversation with a, a core and fundamental respect for other views and other opinions, and, and we may agree to this disagree, but it makes us a better nation when we can have a dialogue, when we're not uh, shouting at each other, because I've always believed, as others have stated, that you know when we're shouting at each other, neither of us is hearing, let alone listening. Indeed so. In fact, <laughs> if you'll notice, the word silent and the word, I'm sorry, silent and, uh, I'll have to come back to that, I forgot what they were, but, but mm -hmm. <clears throat> indeed, Gaddy, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, you are a, a solid person. You do listen, uh, and uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, about how you were raised and where, and how you ended up in Orange County. Well, I uh, I was uh, born in the state of Texas, and uh, my parents uh, were descendants of migrant farm workers, and my parents were both migrant farm working families, and we had had uh, multiple generations of of family members who worked, and some who still work in the migrant farm uh, field uh, area, and uh, so we were in Texas, and like so many uh, back then, although the the course seems to have reversed itself with many Californians going to Texas uh, back then in 
the 50s, it was a case of let's go to California to find greater opportunities in the Golden State. And my parents relocated to Watsonville, California, where I spent the early years of my childhood. And again, uh, they made a living by working as, as farm workers, um, uh, harvesting the crops, uh, doing backbreaking work, uh, and uh, and working side by side with what was then known as the Bracero Program, where Mexican uh, workers were came to the United States and were placed in various farming communities to be able to assist in the harvesting of the crops uh, and help build uh, the important agricultural economy of California. And uh, at one point, then my parents uh, moved to Southern California at the behest of a relative who suggested that there might be some better economic opportunities working in areas where it wouldn't require such a, a, a harsh and difficult uh, physical work. And uh, so we moved to Orange County, California, which was uh, probably the best decision my parents ever made because it became our permanent home, the place where I grew up, the place where I went to both uh, elementary, middle, high school, college. And uh, over the course of time, my father, who had been involved in the church ministry for some time, uh, was able to uh, establish a church in the city of Orange, which uh, exists today as a congregation, and he has passed uh, some years ago. Uh, but his legacy lives on through the ministry that he carried out, both when we were living in Watsonville, albeit uh, part-time limited work, uh, and uh, and then became full-time work for him uh, in the late uh, stages of his career. And uh, neither of my parents graduated from high school. I, like so many young Latinos uh, today, was a first generation college graduate in, in anywhere in my family. And so it was, it was a cause for celebration. It was a milestone, but it also broke that cycle of poverty that my mother was so adamant about breaking. And she vowed that uh, we would be the last generation of, of uh, family members within our immediate family uh, to do migrant farm working work. And, and, and no disrespect, because I will tell you that uh, every time that I drive through the Central Valley, or I drive through an area where I'm able to see uh, workers uh, working in the fields, it takes me back to my childhood. And and I will tell you, Judge, that um, the times were difficult, the times were challenging, but it also served as a foundational uh, basis for me to appreciate a value uh, what that experience brought to my life and also became the basis upon which I built my public service career in the context of serving others and giving a voice to those who did not have a voice and to help those who are uh, either social or economically or politically disadvantaged uh, to be able to acquire a, a rightful place in society and make a meaningful contribution. And so uh, I grew up then went into, into law enforcement thinking I would have a long-term career in police work. And uh, for me, the good fortune in some respects was that uh, new opportunities emerged, which caused me to divert from the law enforcement career that I thought I would have in the long term to go into a broader sense of public service, including elected office and into the, into the uh, diplomatic corps, as well as director of the Peace Corps, and as you stated in the introduction, as, uh, as an appointment secretary to Governor George Duke Majin, uh, a seat on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, and so it, it provided uh, a great journey, and I've been blessed to be able to make contributions both at the city, county, state, and federal levels of government, and, and albeit overseas as a, as a representative of the United States. So I have been blessed beyond measure, and it all began, though, in, in the farm working fields of California, and uh, today I'm, I'm very proud to have uh, been able to give some
something back to to a nation, a country that has given me so much. Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez has said a great deal in the last few minutes, and and <clears throat> I've got to tell you as well that. I believe that people come to our country not to be leeches on the social network, but or to to serve the American dream, <clears throat> to to pursue the American dream. And uh, the Bracero program was something that allowed this to happen. Gaddy, how have we gotten in our country so anti-immigrant? Because people, we, we need immigrants here. People come here to work. They come here to have a better life for themselves and their children. Shouldn't we have a guest worker program again? How did how did we ever lose that Bracero program? Well, I, I think there there's a place for programs that allow for uh, that kind of placement of workers uh, to occur during seasons and times when when the the demand may exist. Uh, so uh, we we have to remind ourselves, I think, and I, when I say ourselves, I mean all of us who who are Americans who live here, that agriculture and the harvesting of crops is critically important to the farming and agricultural community. The question becomes, and this is the great debate, is how do we formulate a policy, be it immigration policy or work placement policy, that allows uh, for reasonable, safe, secure access uh, to working places and sites across the nation to help sustain that economy. Uh, farmers in California will tell you that without the work of the farm worker, uh, that the agricultural economy of California, which is vital to California and frankly vital to to uh, the nation, uh, begins to suffer either in the context of of losing the capacity to harvest or uh, having to raise prices in order to be able to put put food on the table. So there has to be a balance. And and I think that... Uh, when I reflect on on uh, President Ronald Reagan and the Immigration Reform Control Act in 1984, uh, when you think about it, that was the last time that we had any really significant uh, immigration policy reform at the federal level that began to address uh, the issue of immigration and and how we could provide for a balanced, safe, secure approach to ensure uh, the well placement and policies that allow for people to immigrate to this country. Having said all that. Judge, I think it's it's important to to also acknowledge that we, as a nation, are a nation of immigrants, and every year uh, thousands of new immigrants uh, become citizens of the United States, and and we should celebrate that because we do have a process in place. But I do think it's important to have the the public discussion, the public debate, so that we all understand the importance of integrating all of those pieces into into the workplace, so that we can sustain the economy that is so critical and important to our nation. You know, I would employ a, a program like the Bracero program where we would give people who wanted to come here, could we'd have a background check of, you know, mental health issues, maybe terrorism issues, that sort of thing, and then issue what we could call an orange card, something that could not be counterfeited, maybe based on the iris of your eyes, something like that, and then you can come in and work. And if you can support yourself, bless you, please come. If you can support your family, please bring them too. No welfare would be attached, but then people will be here legally, Gaddy, and, and they want to work <laughs> like you. I, I drive by occasionally some strawberry fields, and picking strawberries is backbreaking work. And it's, these people come here, they want to, to participate, they want to be successful. <clears throat> what, then, of course, you'd have to have a program where you would actually 
punish or, or prosecute employers that hired somebody that didn't have this program. So you'd be, you wouldn't need a wall. You would just have people here voluntarily. And then they can go home and after a certain period of time, whenever they want to. But why haven't we pursued this? Because it's so polarized today. And immigrants are, are wonderful people. Well, I think I think the reason it hasn't been pursued is because I think there have been uh, there's been a, a, a volume of, of of rhetoric, if you will, uh, on both sides that creates that that uh, obstruction to a, a real civil discussion, as you and I discussed a few minutes ago, that prevents that kind of discussion from taking place. And uh, but I do believe that it is one that that needs to happen, should happen. And as I stated earlier, it was President Reagan who I think I think the quote was that we needed to bring people out of the shadows who are living here in the United States, provide a basis and a means uh, to be able to immigrate into this country using an established process. Uh, but as I think we have seen of late is that uh, there, there may be capacity issues, processing issues, and obviously the overriding and overarching issue in all of this is that we do need to have safe and secure borders. There is, there is no question that that needs to happen as, as a matter of principle. Uh, the the question is, is what, what do you do within the framework of immigration policy that allows to create a comprehensive, balanced uh, approach to implement, implementing public policy? And that, that is the debate is, that is yet to happen. Here, here. And in fact, uh, I, I've now come back to it. The, the word silent and the word listen have exactly the same letters in them. And there's, there's a connection mm-hmm. there. It's just something that, mm-hmm. that Gaddy Vasquez, Ambassador Vasquez, does extremely well. You were first as you said, employed by the Orange Police Department. Uh, tell me, tell me what it's like to be a police officer. Well, it's been a few years, and uh, the job of a police officer in our society has evolved uh, tremendously. I, I, I'm, I'm drawn to the fact that uh, today police officers, any, and any time I see an officer in a public setting, uh, I can't help but look at all of the, the equipment that, uh, the tools that they carry with them on their person. Uh, uh, at a time when I was in law enforcement, you basically had your service weapon, your, your baton, your handcuffs, you might have some extra ammunition, uh, and at night a flashlight, uh, and you didn't even have a, a radio pack set, you know, a portable radio communications device to be able to speak to your station. Uh, and, and it's interesting because when I share that with people, they say, well, you know, what, what, would, what would you do if you had a, you were in a jam? Why would you communicate? And, and I simply said, well, you hope that somebody would go by and place a call or you'd find some means by which to get back to the car and be able to call in for, for backups or, or assistance. And so, uh, the, the, the job, the challenges of being a police officer have really evolved in our society and technology, whether it's uh, the, the officer cameras or the cameras that officers carry on themselves now and activate, uh, s- uh, cell phone technology in terms of people that you come in contact with who are recording, uh, all of those things uh, have really changed the way that uh, I think police officers have to carry out their duties and their responsibilities. But I, I will say this to you, Judge, that one of the things I remember from the police academy that, that has, has stuck with me uh, throughout these decades since I was uh, in law enforcement on a full-time basis 
And I remember an instructor that we had in the police academy in Los Angeles that, that emphasized to us, and I think you'll appreciate this as, as a former judge, that uh, he reminded us that of all the positions, all of the, the levels of authority in our society as Americans, that as a police officer, the color of your authority, the power that you have, the authority that is invested in you by the Constitution, in the case of California, and the laws of California, is a very, very powerful level of authority in our society. And and consequently, he emphasized, and I've never forgotten, that that authority needed to be used very judiciously, uh, that it had to be used within the framework of the law in terms of respecting uh, the legal rights, uh, the civil rights, uh, the human rights of, of individuals in our society. And and I think that's, that's critically important to always remind oneself when you're in law enforcement that you you are given a great deal of authority to stop someone on the street to to stop and cease their their mobility to walk down a street to drive down a street and you have the authority to demand uh, identification disclosure those kinds of things and but those all of those things need to be used very very carefully uh, because I think when you do that it makes law enforcement um, uh, stronger uh, it makes it more credible uh, it maintains a high level of integrity uh, and in the big scheme of things I think it makes the job of the police officer a little bit easier when you acknowledge those things and and I will say that uh, the job has gotten more difficult but I have to salute uh, the men and women in law enforcement at all levels federal state city county uh, that uh, the majority of these officers do an incredibly great job they honor their position they respect the authority of the badge uh, they stay within the framework of the law and respect the rule of law uh, both coming and going and so as a consequence uh, I think most officers uh, by by far do a tremendously good job in our society and obviously there are those who will uh, make become the exception and violate that line that I just articulated to you resulting in in a, in a very disruptive atmosphere sometimes in a community causing upheaval civil unrest those kinds of things so I think it's very, very important to preserve that that respect that comes with the rule of law and within the framework of the authority the police officers have. Ambassador Vasquez, when I was a child, my parents drummed it into me, Jimmy, if you get lost, what will you do? And the answer is, I will find a policeman. He's my friend. To some degree, we've gotten away from that. And I happen to think the war on drugs has caused a great deal of that problem. But like you say, most people, and it's my experience as a prosecutor, as a judge, most police officers, we would be absolutely downright proud of that it is the, yep. they are ultimate social workers, and they do a wonderful job. And I think Think that they should be wearing these body cameras uh, because it will exonerate, it will show that most every time that they do the right thing, that they know that they have a badge and a gun, they know that they have this extra authority, and they use it judiciously, and we'd be proud of them. And of course, we all know Absolutely. too that if everybody knows they're on camera, they tend to act a little bit differently, and that certainly includes the civilians as well. And I think that you probably learned this in your uh, police uh, training as well, but just like with a medical doctor, a surgery is the last resort. With a police officer, I believe that an arrest should be a last resort. Was this instructed to you as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it was. It was emphasized, and uh, you know, there there are moments that you had to make split decisions uh, because 
the reality is, Judge, that uh, the arrest of a person uh, is a very significant event in the life of that person, uh, particularly if, and, and the law needs to be applied equally across all demographics, economic and otherwise, but the reality is, is that an arrest in the life of a person is a very, very significant event that can have lasting personal, social, professional consequences, and so I think that the, the bar that one sets, I certainly did, uh, it, it never was the basis to not make a, a lawful arrest that needed to be made, but it was a process that I checked off in my head uh, that I wanted to make sure that that the standard or the requirements of law, the test of the law to ensure that if the arrest was to be made, that in fact it could be sustained and upheld in the court of law as a legitimate arrest. Uh, and and that's, that, was, that was always a, an emphasis, an area of emphasis. And as a police officer, you know, you have a, you have a lot of discretion. Uh, there were times that I was involved in, you know, traffic stops. And of course you would, you know, you would get the typical line, which was, do you, you, do you have to make your quota today? Uh, have you not written enough tickets today? Those kinds of things. And, uh, you just have to roll along with those comments. Uh, but there is a perception out there sometimes in the community that law enforcement has quota standards that, uh, uh, might necessitate action an officer who might otherwise not take the action. And the reality is, is that, to my knowledge, certainly, uh, I never was in a situation of, of being pressured to deliver certain results. The most important result was ensuring uh, credible integrity it, it, arrests and detentions that were credible, that had the, met the legal test, uh, that had the integrity of the process. And I made it my emphasis and, and my commitment to myself and to those I came in contact to hold up those standards to ensure the integrity of, of, uh, of enforcement. Indeed so, and that's what we need in our society. And, and uh, Gaddy Vasquez has been a public servant, as we are all hearing, just for, for many, many years and has that integrity. Uh, he will listen. Uh, and he's. I, I can tell you, Gaddy, that, that I have seen numbers of people speak to our World Affairs Council that have been in public service with the State Department, with the military, and they're just profoundly wonderful people, dedicated, and that uh, you've been one of those. We're going to come back after a, after a few messages because this man has was the director of the Peace Corps. And most people that have listened to very much to our All Rise programs know that I'm not particularly fond of a lot of government programs because I think they're far less successful, almost always more expensive and far too political than programs run by the private sector. But a major exception to this is the Peace Corps, which I view as a national treasure. And our guest, Ambassador Vladi Vasquez, was the one who was the caretaker of this treasure from 2002 to 2006 under George W. Bush as president. And we're going to talk about that experience after we come back from these few messages. So please stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. 
the Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. We are Americans You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit judgejimgray.com. That's judgejimgray.com. Now... Back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. This is Judge Jim Gray again with our esteemed colleague and guest, Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez. Gaddy is spelled G-A-D-D-I. And I've in my life, I've never heard anyone else named that. Uh, uh, where did that name come from, Gaddy? Do you know? It's, it's a biblical name, actually. Uh, my father... Uh, uh, <laughs> Located that name in the Bible in in the Book of Numbers, and uh, I believe if my memory serves me correct, it's only mentioned once. And my father, uh, being a, a very studious man, uh, found the name uh, and uh, decided that it would uh, it would suit me just fine. And so I've been blessed to carry that name my entire life, and it's it's uh, it has served me well because there are instances that people will say um, I can't remember his name, but it's it's uh, it's and people will immediately say, "Are you talking about Gaddy?" And it will uh, it will uh, immediately give uh, get a reaction from people, and and frankly, it has it has a, a meaning. Many people have commented to me that it has sort of a friendly ring to it, so it it uh, it helps in the process of establishing a line of communication with people at at the introductory level. Well, it, it certainly fits you, and you fit it. And and I've been asked by my wife to be involved in a little bit of silliness on on this show, so mm-hmm. I can tell you mm-hmm. this fits into our prior conversation, Ambassador Vasquez. That uh, recently the police were called to a child care center because a seven year old was resisting arrest. <laughs> we'll we'll work on that. Maybe it's the delivery, but but I, I to carry this out. Uh, I was in the Peace Corps. I was stimulated by President Kennedy. It seemed like uh, it was just a logical thing for me to do between college and law school. And I was in Costa Rica with the Peace Corps, Costa Rica six uh, from 1966 to 68. And I really cherished this program. Uh, we were told not to be political. If for some reason anyone from the CIA contacted us, we were to get away from that. Uh, there was a movement, I understand, modestly recently to put the Peace Corps into the State Department which was resisted, fortunately, because we do not want to be political. We're not political, but you were the the caretaker of that great organization from 2002 to 2006. Uh, tell us about the Peace Corps. Tell us about your experience in the Peace Corps and, uh, and live it up, because I, I love this institution. Then I'll ask you how it's doing today. Well, in 1961, President John Kennedy uh, proposed the establishment of the Peace Corps, and he collaborated with uh, Sergeant Shriver and a number of other leaders uh, to implement uh, the 
establishment of the Peace Corps, which today remains a, a strong, robust program, an agency of the federal government, a, an independent agency, I might add, of uh, the government. And it was established that way with the intent of uh, being committed and focused solely on its uh, mission and vision, and that is to promote peace, friendship, and understanding between Americans and, and peoples of the world or nations of the world. And the program uh, has evolved. It has grown, obviously, with uh, the advent of technology, communication technology, and new platforms, uh, new means by which one can communicate, train, and educate. And the consequence of 50-plus years of the Peace Corps has been that uh, the alum of the Peace Corps is like a who's who in American society, uh, leaders in corporate America, in public service, in politics, in academia, in public health, uh, and on and on and on. And so there are uh, literally tens of thousands of Americans who have gone overseas and accepted the call to go overseas. And, and uh, one of the striking moments for me that uh, really reflects the, the, the spirit and the determination of American values is uh, I was the first director of the Peace Corps uh, post 9-11. And after the attacks of September 11th, uh, there were those who thought that uh, the Peace Corps would be challenged by all of that in that Americans might not go overseas to serve in the Peace Corps, and the reality is is that the application numbers uh, spiked upward uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, and I, I felt so moved by that because it, it really underscored to me the sense that we as Americans, regardless of our ethnicity, uh, whatever heritage we might have or share, uh, the fact of the matter is, is we are Americans, and one of the American values that I certainly grew up with is a sense of volunteerism, the sense of helping the neighbor, the sense of, of helping feed the homeless, of helping someone who was down and out. When we were growing up, we were dirt, dirt poor and lived in a one-bedroom trailer with no running water, no heating, no cooling. And I still remember my mother, despite our own poverty, uh, always opening the door to someone who is homeless and providing them a, a light meal, uh, something to, to, to eat, something to drink. And, and so... I was raised with that value system that so many Americans are raised with, and as a consequence of that, uh, Americans responded in, in, in tremendous numbers uh, to go overseas uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, and it has continued to make a, a very powerful impact, uh, because for those who may not know, the Peace Corps typically operates in rural outlying communities, and the, the opportunity to interact, interface with uh, leaders in these areas, in these distant or remote areas, is across the face of, of the of the earth, uh, the world is uh, is a unique opportunity, and uh, and so it, it continues to be uh, an attraction to young Americans, older Americans. Uh, there is no cap on age for serving in the Peace Corps, although the perception typically is that it's for young men and women. The reality is is that there are older Americans who are serving in the Peace Corps today, and uh, and that's one of the benefits is because in some cultures. Uh, uh, in some nations, uh, older is better, and that that serves the Peace Corps well. But but the fact that we can still 
still embrace uh, the idea of giving two years of your life to go overseas, to learn a foreign language, to experience a new culture, to live in a, in a community that uh, is, is open to the Peace Corps, but new to the individual, is, is a very unique opportunity that uh, remains strong today. Well, Gaddy, I was the sixth group that went into Costa Rica, and we went in as professores de educación física, you know, physical mm-hmm. education instructors at, and, or they called us professors at the high school. So we had a reason to be there. All of the five previous groups were there for, quote, community development, unquote, which I always thought was a little bit strange because here most of us, particularly back then, were recent graduates from college, fairly young. I was 21. I didn't speak the language very well. I didn't understand the customs or the culture. And I'm here to develop your community, which sounds a bit on the arrogant side. But I know that it's mm-hmm. changed since then. That We didn't have any older people in our group whatsoever, and I, don't, I didn't experience any. But now people go there. They have a skill. You know, I've been a mechanic. I, I can do refrigeration. I, I'm an engineer, that sort of thing. How has the Peace Corps changed since I was there from 66 to 68? Uh, and, and how has it changed now? Well, the placement process has evolved and uh, programming has evolved, uh, whether it's working on education, whether it's working on prenatal health, it's working on health issues in general, HIV, AIDS, uh, agriculture, uh, uh, water systems, uh, provision of water, sanitation. Uh, There are a variety of programs that uh, probably go well beyond what you experienced when you were in the Peace Corps because host countries have asked for uh, certain programs that uh, make it more viable for those host countries to have volunteers, not only in the context of where the volunteers are providing a benefit to the host country or the host community, but it's also giving the volunteer the opportunity to use uh, their skills, their abilities, and frankly, in some cases, their, their life learning. And I, I distinctly remember a, a young volunteer woman who I met in the Dominican Republic who uh, was a, had graduated from college with degrees in business, but she was working in agriculture. And I was struck by that uh, because uh, here you have a, a young volunteer, a woman who's been well-educated in business, but we, the Peace Corps had her working in agriculture. And uh, when I inquired as to how she ended up in agriculture, she said, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. And I know everything about agriculture. So she was able to to use practical application to the benefit of farmers and ranchers in the Dominican Republic who otherwise uh, might not have benefited from her her talent, her skill, and and her knowledge and hands-on awareness of how to manage uh, herds of of cattle, poultry, and those kinds of things which she described to me. And it was was really heartening to... uh, and encouraging to hear her speak uh, in that vein, because then it suggested to me that we were doing the right thing. So it is always sort of a somewhat of a tricky, not always, but somewhat of a tricky situation to identify the ideal placement. But as you know from your experience, uh, when you serve in the Peace Corps, you have to be prepared uh, to make the adjustments to to correct certain things, to adjust certain things. Uh, you may have a secondary project besides your main project. Uh, you're 
your main area of work as a secondary project, which may prove to be equally or, or even more fruitful and, and results-oriented than what you may have initiated. So it's, it's a variety. And I think that's one of the things that makes the Peace Corps strong, is if, it, if you're a volunteer who has the, the social, mental, professional agility to make adjustments and self-corrections during the course of your service, then you're likely to have a very good experience. Well, and you're, you're exposing other people to America that most exposures they get are either America has a strong military power or they see Hollywood shows and, of course, everybody's a Frank Sinatra. But uh, right. I, in my town, it was Palmar Norte, which was the, the farthest, most northern part that the United Fruit Company came. So on the other side mm-hmm. of our river was Palmar Sur, the south part. And the only people they ever saw were North Americans, uh, Americans, flew planes. You know, they had a landing strip there, and so these private planes would come in, and they would they would be flown by Americans. So people in my town asked me, well, of course, you fly a plane, don't you, Jim? And of course, no. But you, you, you show people, in effect, that Americans are just really ready to roll up their sleeves and, and dig in the dirt with others and, and, and assist. And by the way, uh, yes, I had a reason to be there. I was in teaching physical education in high school, but then also extended that to community recreation and health. Hmm. And, and maybe you can help me with this, Gaddy, because I, I think that I've been over overlooked too much on this, that I should be in the Guinness Book of Records because I brushed my teeth in front of more elementary school classes probably than anyone in history. And uh, I just did well, that as a result of being in the Peace Corps. That's what happens. Right. They're, well, they're great I, ambassadors. I well, you've done a, you've done a great job of capturing the essence, of particularly that last comment about how the the the, the image of of you providing training for dental hygiene uh, to children is is a lasting and powerful impact that, frankly, is difficult to measure. But the other part that's difficult to measure is the influence and the power of uh, a person to person interaction and, and contact between an American volunteer and the people in the local community, whether it's a village, uh, a tribal community wherever it might be in the world, you know, on the plains in Mongolia, in, in Costa Rica, in Panama. Uh, so, so you are putting a face on America that otherwise they might not see, or you're able to influence an image that may have been drawn from watching television, because uh, in some of the most rural, poverty-stricken areas, people have access to American broadcasting and see those images of Americans. And I will tell you that there, there are some misconceptions. I remember being in Morocco, where a young man stopped me and uh, asked me where I was from. I was coming out of one of the mosques in Casablanca, and he asked me, where are you from? And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm from the United States. I'm an American. And he looked at me, and he says, you don't look like an American. And I said, well, I'm an American. And he says, what's your last name? And I said, Vasquez. And he said, well, that's not an American name. Well, that opened the opportunity for me to have a dialogue with him, a conversation about how America and our society is made up of, of men and women and peoples who come from different nations, different places. And it, and, it, and it allowed me then to have that conversation, but also explain to him uh, that in America we have diversity, we have different origins, ethnicities, and I felt good about that dialogue and that conversation. So, so the, the powerful impact of serving two years in a community is a lasting impact that can alter change uh, the course of perception of what uh, people in that village, in that town, in that community may have of Americans. I'm proud of our country, Gaddy. We were founded in a different fashion. We were founded on an ideal and an idea of freedom and, and uh, liberty. And also, you know, if I were to go to Japan 
or Germany or Russia or Indonesia. I would never be known as Japanese, German, Indonesian. Uh, but if those people come to our country, they're known as Americans. We are diverse and we're strong because of it. And candidly, I think I learned more from the people in my town in Costa Rica than they learned from me, that, that we get that exposure. And, and it's just a really important thing. But one tragedy that I had uh, and looking back on my time in Costa Rica, and I kind of fault our training. Most people in my town, and this sounds a bit base, probably never had a solid bowel movement because the water they drank had parasites in it. And uh, I would boil my water, and I, I never... Was I never had a small microscope that I should have taken this into my town, into my co my high school, and said, "Hey, you know, Jorge, get a couple, a little bit of water from the pipe there. Bring it in and let's look at it under the microscope, and you could see these things swimming around in it. Now let's boil the water, and those things are dead. And we could have really made a difference there, but." Uh, mm -hmm. It just wouldn't take very much expense, just a little bit of foresight, and I wish I had done that. But you mentioned that we get into water programs now. Hooray for that. But that makes an enormously lasting difference to the health uh, and welfare of people around the world. And Peace Corps does it. So after you Absolutely. ended up your d directorship of the Peace Corps, it was like 2002 to 2006, if I read, the, uh, read yes. it correctly. And the same day that your directorship ended, you started a new position as the, as I understand it, eighth United States representative to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. And like I said earlier, uh, it was based in Rome. So I'm having a little bit of difficulty feeling sorry for you there. But tell us about that experience. What what did you do? What did the UN Food and Agriculture Organization do? Because frankly, I don't know. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. And, and it was very fortunate for me that I was able to continue my service uh, at the federal level, international or, or diplomatic level, uh, in an area that I was uh, familiar with by virtue of my work as director of the Peace Corps. So it became a, a, a very uh, important role, particularly because we were on the cusp of a potential avian flu pandemic. And so I was tasked with the responsibility of serving as a U.S. liaison and representative uh, to the Food and Agriculture Organization, which is a UN agency uh, based in Rome. Uh, and people ask why Rome, and the reason for that is that uh, my portfolio included five different UN organizations, not all in food and agriculture, but uh, the principles were the Food and Agriculture Organization, known as FAO, uh, the WFP, which is the World Food Program, and the uh, EFAD, which is the International Fund for Agricultural Development. And there were some other agencies that were non-agricultural food-related. And so, so as a consequence of that, my role was to ensure that uh, the agencies that I just mentioned to you were advancing the kind of critical and strategic work that was so important to, A, maintain sustainability, help eradicate world, world food insecurity, hunger, uh, and the related poverty and disease associated with that. The World Food Program, which is in, in brief uh, a first responder agency that deals with with uh, providing food sustainability to uh, countries and regions of the world when there are uh, 
things like refugee relocation uh, and need for humanitarian delivery of food and services, medical and otherwise. And so there, there is an integration of work that goes on. And then the International Fund for Agricultural Development, which helps fund uh, loans, uh, microloans, as well as funding research and grants to uh, innovative and new ways to deal with agricultural development. So, so it was an integrated approach to ensure that the U.S. investment, which is the largest investment of nations uh, in, in these programs, uh, that is to say we are the largest donor, we the United States of America are the largest donors, uh, my, my, one of my roles was to work with these agencies to ensure both the effective strategic use of, of dollars uh, to meet the goals and objectives of helping eradicate uh, uh, world hunger, of delivering viable strategic services to nations and regions in need, and also ensuring that the appropriate research was going on to develop more effective ways of, of expanding productivity of agricultural products, implementing new practices and those kinds of things, and also dealing with things like uh, uh, the threat of an avian flu pandemic, which could have been catastrophic. Fortunately, it didn't materialize. We were ready for it. We had prepared for it, but uh, it did not materialize. So it was, a, it was a very interesting assignment, and it's a multilateral uh, assignment, meaning that uh, my one of my responsibilities was to interface with my counterparts from other nations uh, to try to develop consensus on issues and policies that uh, needed to be voted on in these various venues at the WFP, FAO, and EFAD. You know, you you use the word microloans because I I got to tell you, as a libertarian, I'm I'm biased against a lot of government programs. They're really expensive. They're political, and we give a lot of money to other governments that end up uh, having people drive Mercedes automobiles and open Swiss bank accounts. But but you mentioned microloans. This is from the bottom up. What is what is the program of microloans? So our our audience understands this because I think it's highly successful. A microloan or microfinance is a program that allows small loans, which can be as small as I've seen them as small as $500, $1,000, loan to small business entrepreneurs. Uh, I saw work being done by women who started uh, fish farms, uh, women who started peanut farms, uh, small enterprises where they simply needed a small amount of capital to be able to launch their small business. I remember very distinctly being in Afghanistan outside of Kabul right uh, after the the bombing had ceased in in that region and uh, observed a small makeshift bakery on the roadside and um, and again this Afghanistan at that juncture was in, in upheaval things were very destabilized and and our our vehicles pulled over uh, and this baker was selling naan and uh, which is a form of, of bread if you will a baked product, and he had set up a makeshift oven there on the roadside, and and was employing one or two people, and uh, and I had a conversation with him and asked him how he had you know gotten started, and he said that he had gotten a USAID grant or loan, and I asked how much, and it was about two hundred fifty dollars, uh, and with it he was able to open this roadside stand that uh, he was now operating, and uh, there are countless examples of different kinds of work, and uh, and the repayment on these micro loans is is very very extraordinary. I remember being in a meeting with the EFAD uh, International. 
Fund for Agricultural Development staff in Rome, and they are one of the funders. and And I happened to inquire of them as to who was a better who was a better credit uh, risk uh, men or women who is more effective at repaying their loans. And without hesitation, they said women uh, repay their loans very quickly and very early, and and uh, they were repay at a very high rate. So it's all to say that a very small amount of money allocated in the right hands uh, in in some very difficult situations uh, can certainly have very, very positive results uh, and, and meaningful, sustainable results uh, for a minimal investment. I have been a very, very strong proponent uh, and a fan of uh, microloans uh, to help people in these areas, uh, particularly women, because women are becoming uh, more entrepreneurial in parts of the world where that did not exist in the past. I have for years been donating money to this private organization called Oxfam, and, and Oxfam does oh, yes. exactly that. They have they have these microloans, and my goodness, and, and women, you're right, that did not surprise me at all. I, I've heard that, that they are entrepreneurial, and it gives them some status in their little remote villages. Uh, you, you give a woman $200, she buys a sewing machine and turns this into a business, and it's just enormously successful, so, so thank you for that. In the few minutes we have remaining, uh, Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez, uh, what do you, what, what is the progress that you have seen in the Latino community? You're you're obviously Latino and hardworking people, but but what what progress do you see in the last say ten years in the Latino community and the challenges in that community now? Well, there are several. There are several developments. I think we can say with confidence. One is that the Latino community, and and Latino community, for for the benefit of the audience, is important to understand that in the United States, for your international audience, when generally we speak about Latinos, it encompasses uh, men and women, children of of many many origins, whether it's Cuban, Panamanian, uh, Guatemalan, Honduras, uh, Argentina. Paraguay, Mexico, and and so it is a very diverse community when we talk about Latinos in America. But the reality is is that the Latinos represent a growing economic force in the United States as a, as a market share of the U.S. economy. It is it is large. It is growing significantly. Uh, the political engagement of Latinos, both in elected office as well as a voting block, is beginning to take hold in ways that uh, we had not seen in the past because historically voter participation uh, has been low. That is changing and uh, the level of academic accomplishment is also improving. Uh, Leadership roles for Latinos are expanding both in corporate America as well as in politics. In California, as you know, we have uh, a Latino Secretary of State, a Latino Attorney General, Latino Superintendent of Public Instruction, a Latino on the Board of Equalization, uh, whereas eight, ten years ago, there were no Latinos serving at the statewide council Constitutional level, so so there there is a change uh, afoot here that collectively is making the Latino consumer, the Latino voter, the Latino leader uh, a more formidable uh, force in in the American economy uh, and becoming stronger and bigger voices of influences that I think will serve the nation well uh, because I think it's fair to say that like many 
Uh, others, uh, Latinos, are hardworking, very ethical people who place a great deal of focus on, on family, uh, on faith, uh, and, and striving to work hard, seeking opportunities. Uh, and I've, what I find as someone who's been involved in, in higher education and promoting higher education accessibility for Latinos is that there's a very strong appetite amongst older Latinos like my parents who, while they did not accomplish a high school graduation, uh, dream big dreams for their children uh, to break the economic cycle by going to college, by getting an education and uh, realizing those dreams. And we're seeing more and more and more of that uh, of, as we see more first-generation Latinos graduating from colleges and universities, not only with undergraduate degrees, with graduate degrees and beyond. And so Indeed. I think that's all encouraging and very positive. Well, Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez, your parents are proud of you, and I am proud of you. I am a fan. And ladies and gentlemen, we are listening to and have listened for this past hour here on All Rise on how this man has been in public service, has helped people all rise here and around the world. He's carried the torch for us all, and he's done it brilliantly and wonderfully well. So, Gaddy Vasquez, thank you for being with us. Uh, we really appreciate your contributions and, and your, your work <laughs> as we've covered the police, we've covered community development, we've covered the Peace Corps, uh, we've covered the, com the Latino community as well as the United Nations. You can't do more than that in an hour, but but I really appreciate it. Thanks for being with us. Godspeed to you in whatever endeavors you're involved with. And for our listening audience, if you want to hear this again, uh, it's, you can call it up on demand anytime at uh, voiceamerica.com and uh, go to the Variety Network. In the meantime, join us again next week. We'll have another interesting guest talk about issues that usually are not discussed or understood and again bring in wonderful people like Ambassador Gaddy Vasquez. So thank you. I appreciate your being with us and join us again next week and in the meantime as I always end this show I say life is good because it is. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.